All right, we're rolling. Appreciate you jumping on, Trail. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So I wanted to, the whole goal for me, I'm a whitetail guy from the East Coast, and quite honestly, a new one. I'm 55 years old, coached football almost my whole life. And this last last year was about the first year I haven't coached football in forever. And I somehow got crazy and decided to take up bow hunting yeah. and spent the, the fall in the, in the woods hunting whitetails. Right. But, but my initial goal when I did it was really what kind of attracted to me, attracted it to me was Western hunting. And so that's my goal this fall is to get out and, and go after elk. And so I've been on go hunt a lot. I've been watching you guys a lot, listening to your, a lot of your podcasts and, you know, the whole goal for for me to get this out, honestly, is to help people like me who are trying to literally, it's a completely different world out there, you know, figure out going from the East to the West. Gotcha. Yeah. So you're, you're a football coach for a bunch of years. I was, yeah. I coached college football for 10 years. Oh, um, we're at. I started at Grand Valley state in Michigan, okay. coached at Murray state in Kentucky. And I coached at the university of South Carolina for four years. I, sure. I was a tight end coach and then a line coach. And then I coached high school ball for like another 18, just kind of on the side outside of my job, just because I loved it. And this last year I didn't do it because my daughter's a senior in high school and, you know, she's had a bunch of stuff going on and I wanted to be there for her stuff. But Bert Soren's a buddy of mine. And then Joe Miles, who owns Osseo Gears here in town. And I kind of got hooked up with them and and it turned it into this, like me just kind of going down this bow hunting rabbit hole. And now like I'm in love with it. It's just insane. Yeah. Yeah, it'll it'll grab you for sure. <laughs> yeah, no question. So, I gotta as we start, I would say, you know, if as I look at this, and I'm asking you to look at it the same way, for a guy who's I've been out there and visited, but really doesn't know how to hunt big area like that. You know, we're used to being mm-hmm. in trees and different. What do you think the number one thing is? And I and I'll kind of go down all these kind of rabbit holes, but. In terms of, you know, where do you start, I think is probably what people like me ask is it's just so daunting and there's just so much to learn. Where do you start? Yeah, I think probably the the highest hurdle for most, most folks is just knowing where to go or picking a spot to go and maybe even knowing what species to go for. I think people get hung up on the tag process in the West because it can be pretty tough to navigate knowing, you know, how to get a tag, whether it's over the counter or how to draw a tag. So I would say probably the highest hurdle for most folks is just deciding what to hunt and then figuring out where to hunt. And that can be, it can be pretty tough. I I will say, I think that right now we're like in the golden age of information. I mean, if you want to find an opportunity to go hunting, all the information is there for you. You just really have to dig in and do the research and and just start looking around and and it's all there for you. Yeah. So I think probably the what to hunt is probably an easier question to answer than where to hunt. And so what would you say to somebody who kind of has figured out, okay, I want to, I want to hunt elk. I want to hunt mule deer, whatever, you know, animal they decide they want to hunt. And they're trying to figure out, you know, as they're, whether, as they're looking at, you know, go hunt maps or whatever map system they're using, like you, there's so, so many different strategies, right? So when you're breaking an area apart, like how would you, for somebody who really doesn't even know, well, I want to hunt, you know, a wide open area where I have to do a lot of glassing or, you know, I, I want to hunt an area that's more wooded. How do you, from a strategic standpoint, break the different kinds of areas apart in terms of what that hunting looks like? Because I think that might help people as they kind of look at what they're strongest in, in terms of how they hunt. As you look at a map, 
how do you look at those different areas and how do they differ in terms of the way you hunt them? Yes, I think it depends a little bit. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll take elk, for example, because yeah. I think elk is probably the one that's on most people's radar. I think if you're, if you grew up in the East or the, the Midwest, I think elk is probably the big one for you. The one that you really want to go out and chase. It's, it's kind of that, you know, that unicorn out there, you want to really get after elk. So I would say elk will, will, will address it. I would say first and foremost, you got to figure out how to get a tag. And, you know, if you're just getting into hunting the West, the opportunities to get a tag are going to be either via a draw. So most states are going to allocate permits through a state draw. And if you are unable to draw a permit, you know, your options are really over the counter. And those over the counter opportunities are getting a little bit tougher to to find. But I would say right now, probably your best opportunities are going to be a state like Idaho. You know, those go on sale December 1st. So if you didn't get it on that this year, you're, you're probably already out of the loop for those permits. And really kind of your best backup right now is going to be Colorado. And they still have over-the-counter permits for archery and second and third rifle season. So that's probably the first thing is just finding a tag. You know, I, I would I tell people all the time, apply you know, apply as it makes sense. So apply in all the states that you possibly can. And it can be it can get expensive to apply for those permits. But you know, there there are some opportunities like New Mexico where it's a completely random draw. Idaho's a random draw for their controlled tags. You know, ap- apply as it makes sense for you. But then if you can't get that tag through a draw, maybe looking at over the counter unit. And then above and beyond that, like how do you find an area? You know, really if you buy that over-the-counter permit in a state like Colorado, for example, you're going to start looking at the units that have over-the-counter hunting opportunities. And then you're you're looking at weapon. So if you're talking archery season. So real uh, quick, just to, mm-hmm. just to clarify there. So yeah. when you buy an over-the-counter tag mm-hmm. in, in Colorado, for example, it's not like you can just go hunt any place, right? There's specific units that are allocated for OTC or over-the-counter tags. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah, there there are certain units that are over the counter opportunities. They may be draw for some of the seasons, like a first rifle season, but it might be over the counter for archery or over the counter for second and third rifle season. So you, you got to look at like your Go Hunt Insider account or you know the state regs. You can find that information, but really you just got to nail it down to what unit can I hunt on this over the counter permit that I purchased and. I think people, this is just my personal opinion. I think people get analysis or paralysis by analysis, right? They they look at a map and they're yeah. like, I can hunt, I can hunt all these different units. Mm-hmm. I really think in a state like Colorado, for example, every one of those units has got more than enough elk currently that you can find some success. I would tell people spend your time on drilling down in a unit versus trying to pick the perfect unit because every unit has elk in it. Every unit has elk habitat and it's got more than enough opportunity that you can find some success if you really drill down and do your research within that unit. So I would say, you know, look at things like harvest success, look at trophy potential, look at the terrain. So if you're a guy that wants to do a backpack hunt, there's going to be units that have more of that type of country in them. They're going to have more wilderness, more remote country. So if that's your, you know, your forte, go that route. If you're looking for a unit that's got more roads and trails, you know, start looking at your maps and try to find those units that have better access for you. And then, you know, pick a unit that you like based on all those different parameters and then really start to drill down within that unit to find the areas that are most likely to hold elk and give you an opportunity to harvest. So that's kind of the process I go through. You know, if I'm looking at 
elk and, you know, trying to find an elk in a new unit. We'll take archery, for example. I know that those bulls are going to be rutting in September, which is the time frame of that archery hunt. I know that water is extremely critical because elk are a big animal. They have to drink every single day. I know that bulls that time frame in September are going to be, you know, kind of pre-rut, rut, and then post-rut. They're going to be wallowing probably. They're going to be gathering cows. I know that shade is important for them because they have to thermoregulate. They're a big animal. They're going to be expending a lot of energy during the rut. So things like north-facing timbered slopes that are adjacent to feeding areas that have, you know, good lush feed in it. Those are all things that I'm thinking about. So water, feed, cover. And then as you're kind of moving into that post-rut, those rifle timeframes, second and third rifle seasons, it's going to be a little bit dependent on what kind of weather it gives you. But, you know, south south-facing slopes can become important because they're going to bear off on a, on a big snow year. And those bulls are going to kind of congregate on some of those north-facing or south-facing slopes to kind of get food. You know, also bulls post-rut, they like to pull off into some of the nastiest steepest deep country that they can find because they're looking for solace and refuge post-rut. So in those instances, I'm looking for what are those little remote tucked away pockets that probably still have some feed that are away from pressure. Are they similar to, to whitetail and that, like you said, once you're, once the rut's over that they're, they're basically burned out They're and they just really just want to go eat and get away from everybody. Is that pretty much the way they are post-rut as well? Yeah. They're going to burn so much energy during the rut that they're really post-rut trying to just pack on body weight to get them through the winter. Mm-hmm. And so th- they're going to find a hole and hide up in it where the feed is good, where they don't have to move that much during the day, and and really just trying to pack on the calories for the winter. Gotcha. So when you're kind of – one of the things that I've – as talking to my friends and, and people that went for the first time or thinking about going for the first time, a big deliberation point is do I go guided – or do I go and try to figure it out on my own? What are your thoughts around using a guide as, you know, the first year or two as a way to kind of shorten the learning curve as opposed to going out there and, you know, trying to figure everything out the first go around? Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a great idea. I mean, if you can afford the cost of a guide for a five or seven day hunt, I definitely think it's going to help shorten the learning curve for you both in terms of like what kind of habitat and areas should I be looking for in the future? Animal behavior, I think is, is huge. I mean, it's the same thing with whitetail is really understanding those whitetail and you know, what they need, what times of year and how they behave just biologically. So I think, you know, if you go with a guy that can really help shorten that learning curve and then just in terms of like methodology, how do you hunt them? Like, when do you call? When do you not call? When do you make a move? How do you play the wind? How do you work the topography? You know, when to sit a wallow and when to to not sit a wallow and move. I think if you can afford a guide, I think it's an awesome opportunity to help shorten the learning curve. And I would highly suggest it if you can afford it. And what is, what's a reasonable, obviously there's a big range, but let's just say what's a reasonable cost for a guide on a public land hunt versus, you know, a private hunt? I would say it depends on, it depends a little bit on the area. So if you drew, you know, a good tag where the trophy potential is good, obviously the cost of that guided hunt is going to be higher and you're probably looking, you know, maybe it depends on the state and the, and the area, but you know, maybe 10 grand, you know, you could probably go on a drop camp type hunt for maybe 3,500, five grand, something like that. But you're, you're talking several thousand dollars, <laughs> right? you know, 
Yeah, probably five to 10, somewhere in that neighborhood, I would suggest at, at a minimum. Okay. That's good. I've talked to it because that's kind of what I'm trying to do this first year. Mm-hmm. And and I've talked talk to a number of them and that's, it's somewhere, right? Like you said, five to 10. And I was trying to figure out, okay, is that, you know, obviously I'm not talking to guys all over the place. I'm talking to a few of them and trying to get my arms around it. So that's kind of what I've seen as well. Let's say you're going out on your own and you decide that's what you're going to do. As you're evaluating maps, one of the things that, that I'm try I was trying to figure out is looking at road systems and trail systems and trying to figure out is as you look at that, I know that, you know, out, out East, when we look at a road on a map, we're pretty confident that road is going to be a good road, but you know, going up a mountain, I don't know whether that's the case. Is there any way that you can look at that on maps and know whether you can trust that that's, you know, a road that you can actually make it up or I know that probably sounds like a pretty general question, but for people who aren't out there, that's one of the things that as I look at things, I, I struggle with. Cause I'm like, well, what if I, plan all around this and I get there and like, I can't even get through there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I start looking at County roads first. So usually your County roads are maintained and you can definitely get a sense of how decent a road might be just by looking at the aerial imagery of it and kind of follow it along to, to see if it looks like it's passable by a four wheel drive vehicle versus, you know, a side by side or an ATV. I do think that once you start to really nail down an area and you're making plans, it's always a good idea to call either, you know, the Forest Service or the BLM, whoever the land managed management agency is, and talk to those guys and just talk to them about their travel map and say, hey, this coming out for this hunt, this is the road and the access points that I'm looking at. Is this passable by, you know, four-wheel drive vehicle or do I need a side-by-side or is it even open? You know, is it closed during a certain time frame of the year? All those little details are things that you probably you, you need to have closed up before you actually even come out on your hunt. But yeah, I do a lot of looking just on maps. Typically, you know, most of your mapping platforms are going to delineate the various roads and trails based on kind of what they are, whether it's a county road, if it's a hash mark road, meaning, you know, four wheel drive or, you know, side by side. So I'll give you kind of an idea, but it's always good to make like those last phone calls to the land management agency and just kind of pick their brains about it and see what's possible. So that's what the hash marks means. That means that's a four wheel drive, more of an, it's not a county road. It's something that's a little more, less passable. Yeah. Usually your county roads are like a solid white line or solid yellow line, depending on what it is. But yeah, usually those are solid lines and you can usually tell by just like zooming in on an aerial imagery map and just kind of following them along. And and you'll have a much better idea of, you know, how rough or, or passable they might be. But but like I said, it's always good to, to call. <laughs> are you usually cross-referencing like your map technology and go hunt with Google Maps too? Do you use mm-hmm. Google Maps to kind of double check that? Mm-hmm. You do? Okay. Yep, absolutely. Gotcha. So as you t- start thinking about hunting styles and somebody who's kind of new to doing this do you have a recommendation or what are the differences in terms of the way you approach strategy if you're going to try to hunt from the truck versus you know packing in and setting up some kind of a base camp i think probably a fair amount of it depends on you know your own physical you know potential limitations so if you're a guy that's in really good shape and you know you're not intimidated by reaching out and getting out into the back country and maybe doing some overnighters, whether that's a weekend or, you know, five to seven days or even longer, you know, that's going to come into factor or, 
you know, if you're a guy that is a little more comfortable with wanting to try a truck camp, you you just got to kind of be aware of like what you are capable of physically and and also just mentally, like, what are you prepped for? My my personal opinion is, especially archery hunting, I, I think I've been much more successful by putting myself out in to that country and being more consistently out in it. So I prefer a, a backpack style hunt. I think you're much more effective. I think your, you know, your chances of killing go way up because you're continually out there with the animals. You're seeing behavior, seeing animals move, and you're starting to put the picture together. But I mean, as far as consideration, it really, that's a subjective one. That one's pretty tough for me to answer for somebody else. Cause it really depends on what, what you want. Yeah. So I would say, you know, most of the people that I talk to hang out with are pretty good shape, pretty fit. I think the the physical part, obviously, if you've never been out there before, there's just certain things you can't prepare for. But, you know, there's there's things that everyone out here is trying to do or that I know that I'm trying to do in terms of putting in mileage and trying to go find elevation gains and things like that on the weekend just to to prep for those things. The mental aspect of it if you've never done that before, can you touch on that a little bit? Cause I know that you do a lot of solo hunting. You do a lot of extended hunts out in the back country. If somebody's never done that from a mental perspective, what is that like? I mean, I can take you back. I remember I was probably 21, I guess the time when I started, you know, backpack hunting on my own. And I can remember, you know, the first full, night that I was out on my own and it was pretty intimidating. I mean, I laid there awake a lot of the night, just wondering, you know, what every little, you know, crack in, in a branch or, you know, the wind or whatever it is. And you worry about the weather and it can be pretty intimidating. I don't think that there's any replacement for just, you know, doing it. And I think, you know, start with a night, you know, start close to the truck so that maybe only two miles from your truck. So that if something was to happen, you could get back if you needed to you know, start at home. I think if you've never done that kind of thing before, I think even just being close to your, your house or, you know, someplace that you're comfortable to go out, spend the night alone, you know, see how it feels. You know, another tip that I give people on the mental side when doing this type of trip is the more that you can do at home before you leave to sure up your, just your mental well-being. So, you know, take care of your bills, make sure your wife and kids are taken care of, make sure your job is covered, Make sure that your plan is solid, that you have all the equipment that you need. You've checked it twice. Make sure that everything is absolutely just set up for you to succeed. And that'll help your mental well-being a lot. Because once you get out there, you know, whether you're you're intimidated by the whole thing or whether something, you know, isn't going quite right. Maybe you're not seeing the animals that you thought you might, or maybe the hunt is just not progressing the way that you hoped it would. It's really easy to talk yourself into going back. And I think the more that you can do on the front end of that to, to just put yourself mentally in a good spot, the better you're going to be. But I don't know if I've got any like magic bullets other than just like doing it and just working at it and, and just taking one bite at a time. I mean, I, I tell my kid all the time, he's a high school senior, he's playing basketball and there's a lot of time he's out there on the court playing ball and, you know, he'll make a bad pass or a bad play. When things aren't going his way, maybe they're getting down a few points. And I always tell him, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You eat it one bite at a time. Just, <laughs> yeah. you just, you just keep at it one thing at a time. Keep it, keep it in perspective. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it's when you hunt, have you done much whitetail hunting? Like, do you come out here and do any of that or not? I've, uh, I've been one time to Wisconsin. Okay. 
Yeah, I think I listened to it was a couple of your podcasts ago, but I, mm-hmm. I heard Lorenzo say he's never done it before, and and y'all kind of got into this conversation about tree stands and how crazy mm-hmm. some of that stuff is. You know, For sure. Then we're like climbing up a twenty foot tree stand at four thirty in the morning in the pitch black. You know, he's like, I can't even imagine doing that. Whereas I can't imagine going out, you know, in the middle of a mountain in the pitch black and not knowing even where you're going. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all kind of trying to figure it all out. What do you think is the biggest challenge? Like, let's say somebody isn't going to hunt from the truck and they're going to go, you know, take a swing at it. What are a couple of the biggest challenges that you would anticipate running into that are pretty normal in terms of, hey, expect to have to overcome this? Yeah, I would say staying hydrated is is one. So making sure that you know where your water sources are and that you're taking care of yourself in regard to staying hydrated. Do you think There's, the maps, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Do you think no, the maps are, are pretty reliable in terms of locating water sources or what, what's your, what's, what's your guidance there in terms of, of finding water sources and, and making sure that you're able to do that? Cause I, that sounds like, obviously it's a really big deal. My question was, that's one of the things that I've worried about is how reliable is the map identifying water? Are there other ways to identify water? Are there, you know, if you look at a map, is there a way to look at it and know that, you know, potentially there's water there during certain times of the year, but there's not water there during other times of the year. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Cause that's obviously a, a big piece of the puzzle, like you said. Yeah, I do a lot of, well, I guess I should say first and foremost, if you're hunting elk, especially early season, like archery, elk are a big animal. They need water every single day. So, you know, if you've got country that looks elky, there's, there's going to be water in it. And if you're seeing elk, there's definitely got to be some water because elk, they have to water every day, especially that August, September, you know, maybe even into mid, late October timeframe. I do a lot of looking at maps. So I'll typically start with topography map because those water sources on a topography map really pop. I mean, you can look at the streams, you can look at the springs. And then from there, I'll do a lot uh, looking at aerial imagery. So if you go through, you know, through time, aerial imagery, you're looking at those different spots that look like they would have water based on, you know, your topography map. And you're looking and you're trying to find those green, wet, lush areas or your creeks or streams and, and you're looking for water. So that's typically how I'll do it. And I'll start, you know, marking those as I go so that I've kind of laid out a plan in place. Like I know, okay, you know, there should be water here. It's, you know, X amount of miles in from my vehicle. And, you know, maybe if I don't find elk here, here's another spot with some water in it. So I'm using topo maps, I'm using aerial imagery, and I'm using that historical imagery to find water. When you you get into, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, well, are you comfortable pulling water from, from anything that's still, or are you pretty much always looking for water that's running? I, I prefer it if it's running. It's just yeah. because, yeah, if it's running, I don't usually carry a, a filter even. I'll just carry like a purification, whether that's drops like Aquamira drops that you mix two parts and mm-hmm. then dump it in the solution. So good running water is best. I have, I've taken a gallon Ziploc bag and I've scooped up water out of an elk wall and I've punched some pinholes in the bottom and, and drained it into a bladder and then treated it with uh, purification drops. And I've drank that before in a uh, pinch. I was actually going to ask you, you drink water out of a wallow? They're... I have, I have done. 
Yeah, I I had a camera guy in Colorado one time almost have a complete meltdown because I was going to make him drink water out of a walla. I mean, he was <laughs> he was distraught, but it was like our only option. And I mean, it didn't taste the best, but it worked. And you just did it with tablets, you know. So that doesn't need any kind of additional purification above and beyond what you would normally treat water with. I just did it with the like I said, I carry these little Aquamira right. uh, drops. Yep, so it's seven drops per liter per you know two different bottles, and you just got to wait five minutes. You dump that in, and I've used that for I don't know twenty years, and I've never been never been sick. Okay, that's a good tip. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're you're looking for running water, preferably. You said you're you're using the the maps to kind of find streams and this and that, and then you mark it as you move forward. Um, yeah. Anything else around water? Yeah. One thing I'll say is I think when you get out on the landscape, I, I would say this is probably one of the the strengths that I have. And I think a lot of people, you know, especially if you're new to it, I think they lay out a plan and they get out on the landscape and, you know, maybe they're seeing some animals, but the area that they're seeing the animals doesn't necessarily fit with their plan, you know? So they'll stick with an area thinking like, well, this is my plan. You know, I want to hunt this area. I know where the water sources are. Mm-hmm. I I think one of my strengths and probably one of the reasons I'm, I've been successful is that once I get out on the landscape is like, I'm reading the landscape and I'm reading the animals on the landscape. I'm seeing where they're at. I'm seeing where they're moving. And if I'm seeing elk somewhere, I'm, I'm going there. Cause like I said, if there's elk in an area, there's water. And it may take me, you know, half a day to kind of figure out or a day where those elk are working and where they're watering, but I'll, I'll find it. I'll find the water. Cause like I said, if there's elk there, there's definitely water. So I would say, you know, get, have a plan in place, go out there. But when you're seeing the landscape and you're seeing those animals across the landscape, you know, read that behavior and evaluate it, anticipate where you need to be to put yourself in the best possible spot to get a shot. So that brings me to, that was a question I was going to ask at some point, or do you, once you locate a herd, do you, are you following that herd or what, what's your, from a strategic standpoint, is it more like, what's your thought process around that? I know that's a basic question, but you know, are you sticking with that herd and following that herd, just trying to create a shot opportunity? Or is it more like based upon where you are and you can get a stock on if it doesn't work the way you want it to? When do you decide to move on and when do you stick with what you've already found? Yeah. So I can give you an example from this last year. I went into a Canyon that I'd hunted previously and it was lousy with elk. And I was hunting the same dates as September. It was about the 14th through the, you know, I had the 25th. So I had those 10 days and I went into this Canyon and I just, this year I wasn't seeing the number of elk that I'd seen previously, probably three or four years ago, I was seeing a whole bunch of cows and calves. I was hearing bulls bugle. They were talking, they were vocal. And this year I was hearing a bull every now and then I'd hear one pipe off and, you know, I kind of work in towards him and he'd bugle a couple of times and kind of move off. And I was getting the idea that maybe, you know, that there just wasn't the concentration of elk. There was a few bulls, but they seemed to be mostly solitary kind of by themselves and, and really weren't rutting cows. And I gave that maybe two or three days, but it just wasn't giving me the type of opportunity that I thought I needed to be successful. So when I'm out there, I'm looking 
for the most action I can get into. And usually when you get into elk country and there is a, you know, a group or even a single hot cow, like if she's in estrus, there's going to be bulls and they're going to be talking and bugling and rutting. So for me, that was a situation where it was like, I could probably give this another, you know, four or five days. And maybe I would luck into one of these bulls, these solitary bulls that were just kind of by themselves, or I could probably move on and put myself in a location where there's a lot more elk. There's a lot more vocalization. There's a lot more action and I can give myself a better opportunity to succeed, which is what I did. So you, you got to kind of read, you know, read the behavior of, of those elk. And if you're seeing cows and calves, you're hearing lots of bugles, it's probably worth sticking with it, you know, keeping after it because those elk are going to kind of congregate. They're going to be in an area. They may move a drainage or so over, in that situation, I'm going to stay with that herd. I'm just going to put myself into that area every single day and I'm going to use their vocalizations to try to put myself in a place that I can get a shot. But if it's kind of hit or miss, it's not really working out. You know, at that point, I just decided to move on. And, and you also got to kind of read the stages of the rut. So like if you're hunting, you know, the first 10 days of September, a lot of those bulls aren't going to be you know, rutting cows, they're not going to be super vocal, but you may be able to utilize a, a pinch point like a saddle, or you may be able to utilize water, a water source, whether it's a drink tank or a wallow, especially if a wallow is getting hot, there's probably not a better strategy in the world than setting a wallow those first 10 days of September if it's a wallow that's getting hit. And, and it's a lot like whitetail hunting, you're just going to kind of find a nice spot that you can put the wind in your favor and post up on that wallow. And a lot of time those bulls will just come in quiet. As you move into the rut, you know, maybe the 14th to like the 25th of September, I'm really looking for bulls that are talking. And I'm, I don't do a lot of calling, but I do a lot of, you know, just throwing out a, call, a cow call or a beagle to get a response. And then I'm using their responses to put myself in a location that I can get a shot. So it's kind of a two-part answer, I guess mm -hmm. I would say, is is just kind of reading their behavior, reading the stages of the rut, and and just making a decision that is going to help you be in the best possible spot to kill. So you'd said something that's interesting because I I can't remember it was it was some podcast I listened to, but they they were talking about how they thought that they vocalized more early on before the rut before they had, you know, a cow or somebody in asterisk because they were kind of competing, you know, and waiting for that to happen versus being as vocal once the, the rut is on, but you, you experienced something different. It sounds like. Yeah. I would say in my experience, they've been the most vocal when those cows are in asterisk and you can have a cow that comes into asterisk, you know, early, maybe the eighth, ninth, 10th. And I've, I mean, I killed a bull in Utah a couple of years ago. I think it was probably the 9th of September and the bulls were really ruddy. I mean, they were really bugle and really moving, chasing cows. So I, in my experience, I think they get the most ruddy. They get the most vocal really when those cows are coming into estrus. And I would say it's typically, you know, the 10th through the 25th of September. Okay. Those are your favorite dates to kind of hunt. If you could pick up a, a time frame, that's when you're wanting to go. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's a tough question because I think, I think that's the best in terms of vocal vocalization. I think when the elk are most vocal. So if I was going into an area blind, I hadn't done any scouting. 
and I wanted to give my myself the best chance to hear bulls and you know work in on them and find elk. I would say those would be my my best dates. If I was looking to like target an older age class bull and I had time to scout, I really like that first 10 days of September because I think if you can find a bull, they're a whole lot more likely to be in that same general area before they really start to move with okay. cows. So it that's kind of a yeah, makes kind sense. of a twofold question. Yeah, I mean it's it's similar to to whitetail in a specific, mm-hmm. you know, is it's you can pattern them, you know, up to a certain point before the pre-rut starts and then once once you get you know pretty much through the pre-rut the pattern starts to go away when they start chasing does and then it's kind of like you start hunting pinch points and things like that so it sounds like it's somewhat similar for sure yeah so you said something well actually i'm going to circle back on something let's say somebody's got no experience out there It, it seems to me like and this may be more of a just a basic thing but it seems to me like it would be easier to when you do your pre-scouting through maps to find an, find areas that are more open that you can do more glassing as opposed to really heavily wooded areas where unless you know the area and you've done a lot of scouting it seems like it would be harder to find them at that point because you're really just going based off of vocalization is that too much of a generalization or is that am I on the right track there and if I'm I- not then yeah. T- tell me about both of them and kind of tell me how you would approach, you know, more of that open area where you can glass versus if you, if you end up hunting a really heavily wooded area. Yeah. I, I think it depends on, I guess I should say I, I look for mosaics. So I've, I've probably said that in a bunch of podcasts, but I, especially archery season, because like I said, elk need, you know, thermoregulation, they need shade because they're a big animal and they're expending a lot of energy. So they're going to need those north facing slopes they're going to need you know cool timber pockets kind of bed up in for the day they love benches they love ridges that are kind of timbered to bed up on where they've got a little bit of a flat spot to bed down on because they're a big animal and you can find y'all you added to maps right you can find like you can look for north facing slopes on maps now correct Yeah. So we have this topography tool, also slope tool. So you can go within your go hunt maps and you can pull up that tool and you can just highlight north, northeast, northwest facing slopes. And all those slopes are going to show up on your map. They're going to be highlighted. And then you can also filter by slope. So if you only want to look at everything from like zero to 15 degrees, you can do that. And that's going to be highlighted. And really, if you use that topography tool, you can put yourself in a pretty good spot. You can give yourself a pretty good understanding on where you think elk are most likely to to bed up because they do like, you know, gentle topography to bed on. And they also like cool shady spots, especially mid, you know, mid afternoon where they're going to, you know, hole up and spend the day. So that's a super handy tool. But I guess going back to your original question, I, I like edge habitat. I like mosaics. So you know, open feeding areas with a lot of edge habitat. I like burns for elk because you get a burn maybe three, four years post. It's like ice cream for elk. I mean, you get all that regrowth and vegetation. Mm-hmm. And I've hunted areas. I mean, I killed a bull this year and a burn that, you know, there wasn't much live timber anywhere, but they were out in that burn because the feed was there, but they were still bedding on those north facing slopes for most of the day because that's where the shade was. So I, I would say you know, look for a nice mosaic, 
look for shady north facing slopes with some benchy habitat, some water. Usually if you can find that type of area, you're going to find elk. And it, and if it's glassable, you know, awesome. If not, then then cover ground and use your calls to try to get some answers. So, can you talk a little bit about a little bit more about that? Like let's say it's not an open area, which I get what you're saying with the mosaics. That's kind of similar to uh, again, to whitetail is like, they like transitional areas. They like, you know, cause you, like you said, they're getting different things in different places. So if you can kind of find that place that has a little, has everything that they're looking for, they have a lot more tendency that they're going to be there. So, but let's say you're in that heavily wooded area and, you know, somebody that's new, who's new to calling, you know, what's your recommendation around that? Like, do you, Obviously there's a lot, there's new calls out there now where you kind of have the mouthpiece and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. What do you, what's your recommendation around whether you're doing cow calling versus, you know, bugling? I know that that's an entire conversation in and of itself, but if you wanted to give like calling 101, what would that sound like? Yeah, I would say, you know, kind of work, you know, basin. So if you pop up onto a ridge, you got a nice basin that looks like it could, could hold some elk. Typically, I like to start with just a cow call and, you know, I, I like the little Phelps easy estrus, which is just a bite and blow and I'll throw out a cow call. That doesn't obviously have the reach that a beagle does, but I do that in case, you know, there is a bull that is in, you know, closer proximity to, mm-hmm. to me. So I'll, I'll often start with a cow call. I'll throw out a few cow calls and wait and just see, you know, if nothing responds, I may pull out the bugle and just throw out a couple locator bugles and just see if I can get something to pipe off. And then, you know, I, I, I don't do a lot of calling. I'm not a great caller by any means. I, you know, I've called some elk in, but it's not my primary method of killing elk. Right. I do use them to locate elk. And usually if you get an elk going, you know, if he's bugling and he's talking or, you know, even if I didn't get him going, if he's just bugling on his own and he's kind of responding to what's going on out in the woods, I'll just let him do his thing and I'll work towards him. So I guess to answer your questions, I start with cow calls just in case there's something close. And then if nothing, I'll throw out a lake locator bugle. If nothing pipes off, you know, I'm working around into the next drainage and I'm just hitting those high points and I'm just working country trying to get a response. That was, that was a follow-up question I was going to ask you was, do you need, let's say you, you do a locator bugle and you're able to get a response. Do you need to, to keep that going? Like it's a conversation or once you get a response, do you, is it a better strategy to kind of sit and do they just kind of keep going? That's from a, I've wondered that as well, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Every, every bull is a little bit different, you know, it just depends on what he's feeling that day, what he's got going on. If he's got cows, usually if I throw out a locator bugle and he beagles back, I'm going to kind of gauge the distance on where he, where I think he is. I might try to get an idea based on the lay of the land where I think he might be going based on the time of day that he bugles. And I might work that route. And again, I mean, this is just like hunting whitetail. Wind is everything. Mm -hmm. You have to, you have to pay attention to the wind. I mean, elk will definitely, he'll put up with some sight. He'll put up with a little bit of sound because they're a big noisy animal, but you know, they won't put up with, with being, with catching your wind. Yeah. So you still got to play the wind, but you know, if a bull doesn't respond back to me and I've kind of cut the distance and I've moved in, he's not continuing to bugle, you know, at that point, I'll just test the waters again, throw out a cow call, see if he bites. If he doesn't, I may throw out a bugle. 
And, you know, there's going to be times when a bull is just like, today's not my day. I don't want to play. I'm just going to dummy up and not say a word and move on. And you, you may never know where he goes, but I just try to move towards them. I try to play the wind and, you know, I try to gauge his reaction and I let that dictate how much calling I do. Okay. That makes sense. So just for an example, I know you referenced a little bit earlier, the hunt you had last year where mm-hmm. you kind of moved and, and went and found elk. Can you talk a little bit about, let's say you find a decent herd with a number of elk and, and it's got, you know, a bull and I don't know whether it's got satellites around it or not, but let's say you find that what's your, are you pretty much just moving with them and, and basically camping somewhere close? And if you are, what does that look like in terms of how you're setting up at night? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm moving with them. I'm trying to stay in, you know, close enough proximity that, if I put a herd to bed at night, if, you know, I've ran out of light and they're either, you know, up on a ridge or they've moved into a canyon just on the backside of a ridge from me, I want to be close enough to them that I can pick them up again the next morning and hopefully get a beat on where they're going and try to make a play on them, try to cut the distance. So it look like when you say close enough, like generally, is that a, a distance or is that more like a you know, kind of a topography thing. What does, what does close enough mean? I would say more of a topography and a, and a wind thing. So I'm, I'm trying to not, you know, let where I camp blow into where they are for the night. Right. I, I don't want them to, you know, win me. So if I've got to drop off the backside of a ridge and, and, you know, maybe hole up in a little pocket or a Canyon, that's just the other side of where they are. I'll do that. You know, I have, I have done at nights. I've just bedded down where I've been because it's just, you know, where I am and where I might be in the bottom of a Canyon. And, you know, I don't want to hike out through a bunch of deadfall and Jack straw pine to, to cut the distance. So I may just stay right there that night and then get up early the next morning and, you know, climb up out of that and, and get close enough to them that I think I can get a response to them in the morning. But a lot of it depends a little bit too. Also, I mean, if you've got a full moon, you know, elk may be feeding and moving all night. Typically, if you got a dark moon and you get dark, they're not going to move too much. And if they're vocal, you should be able to pick them up first thing in the morning. But I, I have been more successful. This is just my opinion. I think I am more successful when I move with those herds. If I'm staying out there with those herds and I'm trying to put myself in a location that's close enough to them that I can pick up them bugling the next day which i think it probably goes back to what you said in the beginning right if you're camping from a truck mm-hmm. um, or working from some kind of a base camp then you go back there at night and then you've got to figure out okay how when when do i have to get up and then you've got to move to try to pick them back up in the morning and so now you're doing a lot more movement back and forth to try to make that same thing happen yeah i i remember i i did a hunt in new mexico as a backpack hunt and and it was 10 days by, you know, by myself. And I remember running into a guy and he was trying to base camp hump from a tent and he was packed in with a base camp tent set up. And I remember talking to him and he was just like, I, I'm so beat. Cause I'm every morning I'm up and I'm, you know, three or four miles in and I'm trying to find this herd. And by the time I find them, it's, do I still have you. Yeah. I just, I hit my Got mute it. button cause I had to. <laughs> gotcha. Some echo, my bad. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. He was saying, you know, I'm three or four miles in to where I think the elk are before I'm getting a response. And by that time, you know, I'm midday and they're kind of moving off into their bed and I don't really have them pinpointed. And then at night 
I'm hiking all the way back to my base camp and I'm trying to do that. And he's like, I'm just beat up and I'm tired and I don't really feel like I have a good beat on him. And, and that kind of tells me, you know, if I'm out there, if I'm staying with them, if I'm staying active and I'm picking them up first thing in the morning, I'm giving myself that much more opportunity to, to, to cut the distance. And, you know, that year I killed a bull. I remember I picked up this herd first thing in the morning and, you know, it was a really vocal herd. There was a herd bull and probably four or five satellite bulls, probably a herd of 25 cows and calves. And from where I picked them up in the morning all the way into the point where I actually got a shot and I killed this bull was almost four miles. So if you're trying to cover that four miles plus the miles back and forth between your truck, it's just not feasible. Yeah, that's just so much movement. And plus yep. you're smoked, right? I mean, you're burning sure. all your energy getting back and forth from camp. So do you do you use a bivy sack or do you just carry like a small one-man tent with you? Like what's your preference in terms of how you set up at night? Yeah, I've been a, a bivy sack. I just, I carry a bivy sack and a tarp. And most nights I don't set the tarp up. If it looks like I've got bad weather, if it's going to rain on me, I'll throw the tarp up with a couple of trekking poles or just a you know a couple of sticks. And I'll pitch that tarp over my bivy sack in my sleeping bag. But most of the time, and it's really just a, a matter of ease, I just want to be in bed as quick as I can that night. And I also like keeping a low profile. So I'll just throw my bivy sack out, throw my pad, blow it up, sleeping bag in it. You know, I'll eat and I'll be in bed in five minutes. And then, you know, again, first thing in the morning, it's so much quicker to just roll everything up, stuff it in your pack, and then you're all to go. So what's your, what's your recommendation on what's your, your favorite bivy and what pad are you running? Yeah. So my favorite sleeping pad is the Thermarest Neo Air X-Lite. I've got two of those that I bought about seven years ago and I'm still, I still have the same two pads. I've been using the same one and then I've got an extra just for a backup that I keep in the truck. And then for a bivy sack, I've been using the Hillebird. It's called the Bavana rack and it's, it's, it's a bivy sack raincoat. So it's got sleeves, it's got a hood, it's got a center zip. And then it's basically just a long Gore-Tex sack that I can slide my sleeping pad in. And I've also been able to use that just as a kind of an emergency rain gear if I need it because it is waterproof. So it's pretty minimal. It's not luxurious by any means. And, you know, if you're a person that has a little bit of intimidation of just like sleeping with your head out under the stars, it may not be for you. And there's definitely nothing wrong with a one-man tent. I just like a bivy because it's so quick. Fast and easy. Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you, like you brought up the wind earlier, which obviously that's the one thing that is similar, you know, coming from the East Coast to the West Coast is that's something we have to worry about all the time. But talk to talk a little bit about how the wind, I mean, so I think the, the basic thermals, right, rise, you know, from the morning as the day goes along, fall at night. Can you talk a little bit about how the thermals change around topography where that might you know be not where the rules get broken right where you either get swirling winds or where you where you might have some piece of topography where it kind of breaks that rule that you have to be aware of as you're playing the wind yeah it's man it's it's hard to to throw a blanket over it and say like this is (laughs) what always happens it's really i know it's it's, not always going to happen but i guess i'm just looking for Things that might, you know, for somebody new that might, when you're out there and you're like, okay, the thermals are going to rise in the morning and they're going to fall in the night and something that might, that we might take for granted as this is how it's going to happen. And it, and 
you know, this certain situation may not make it happen that way. Not that it's always a steadfast rule, but keep an eye out for this because this can potentially change that rule. Yeah, I get. I guess elementary, just like baseline, just kind of like you're saying. Typically, your thermals are going to come, you know, down in the morning. So they're, you know, as the they're, they're coming down as you got the shade in the night. It's going to thermals will kind of drift downhill, and then as that slope starts to heat up, your thermals are going to heat up, and they're going to kind of rise up the slope. So those are kind of your, you know, first and foremost to think about. And just like a whitetail, an elk's going to most often feed with his nose into the wind, right? So he's going to get those thermals coming to him. Prevailing wind is something that you got to kind of pay attention to because a lot of times you'll have, like, for example, this area I hunted last year in Colorado, prevailing wind just seemed to be mostly out of the Southwest. And, you know, during midday, that's pretty much kind of where it was coming and your prevailing wind was coming that way. So it's just something to be aware of also as that relates to like your, your thermals that rise and fall with the, the heat of the day and, you know, the cool of the evening. So what and, normally, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, what, what normally happens, like, let's say, you know, you're at the, the top of a ridge or some kind of a plateau where the thermals coming up and then you've got a prevailing wind coming in from the Southwest. What, what happens when that wind hits that thermal? Is it as, as easy as, okay, it's going to continue to go Southwest or do you potentially get swirling winds when you get something Mm -hmm. like that? Or what do you, and if you're hunting that, what are you thinking when, when you know that's going on? Yeah, you'll get some swirling winds and it it depends on how, you know, strong the, the prevailing wind is, but yeah, that's when you'll get some thermal winds or some swirling winds. You'll also get swirling winds. Like anytime you get, you know, any kind of cloud cover, any kind of storm that's coming in, if you've got clouds that are moving in it seems like you'll get some swirling ends around that i guess as it relates to elk hunting you know typically your elk are going to feed up in the morning with those prevailing winds kind of coming down into their nose and a lot of times it seems like oh i'm never going to be able to you know catch this herd i would say sometimes it just takes a lot of effort and you just keep it after them and just limping along after a herd trying to stay with them most often when it comes to wind i'm trying to put myself on the same plane as them. So I'm trying to approach them kind of in from the side or a diagonal where I've got the winds that are kind of working, you know, not, not directly. It, it's best, obviously, if the work, if the winds working directly from, you know, them to you, but a lot of the times I'm trying to put myself on the same plane as that animal. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's, let's say you, you know, you get to the point where you feel pretty comfortable with where the wind is. You've, you've located you know, an elk that you want to go after. Can you talk something, talk a little bit about stalking technique and just Mm -hmm. basics to keep in mind when you're setting up a stalk, you know, for a lot, again, a lot of, a lot of us, you know, hunt from trees. And I think there's, there's more of an effort now. Like I, I took a couple shots on the ground this year, not like Mm -hmm. actual shots, but, you know, made a couple efforts on stalks this year, just because I, I couldn't get them to come where I wanted them to come. I think there's more of that going on out here, but it's not something that most of us are experienced with. So can you talk a little bit about setting up a stock? Yeah, I would say my favorite method is locating a herd or if if a herd is talking, they're bugling is to work along with them and try to put myself close to that herd. And like I said, if that herd is up and moving, elk are a noisy animal. So I don't often, until I get within maybe that 150 yard range, I don't worry too much about 
you know, being super quiet with my steps, you know, I'm not trying to like break branches and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm trying to be careful, but I don't worry that much about noise because a herd of elk moving through the woods, they make a lot of noise. And you know, that's a pretty big difference, right? I mean, I've heard people yeah. say that, you know, that's one of the mistakes that, that people from the East coast make going out West is they worry a lot more about noise than they probably should. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that's obviously something we need to keep in mind. Yeah. I mean, it's, di it's different with, we are talking a mule deer because a mule deer will, will pick you up. They got those big mule ears and they're a lot mm -hmm. more, you know, secretive and quiet. They're just a much more solitary animal versus a herd of elk. Herd of elk moving through the woods will make a lot of noise, especially if they're bugling. So I don't worry a whole lot about noise. I worry about working shadows. So I try not to get, you know, direct sunlight on me if I can help it. I try to work the shadows of the topography. I try to stay in close proximity. And a lot of times my preferred method is to work along with that herd. And I really like to follow a herd into that time frame of like maybe 1030 to 11 o'clock in the morning. And that's most often when a herd is going to be working themselves to a bedding area. And that's kind of the point in the day when those elk will really start to slow down and they'll kind of have some bedding area in, in mind. And at that point, I feel like I can slip into that herd. That's when I do slow down. When I can hear that herd start to slow down and it looks like they're going to kind of work into a bedding area. That's the point in that stock when I'm going to slow down. I'm going to take my time. I'm just going to kind of creep in. I'm going to watch, you know, keep your head on a swivel. And at that point, I may start working the call. So I may start working a cow call at that point and trying to, you know, let a bull know, hey, there's a cow back here that's kind of limping along behind the herd. Maybe it's, you know, a good time for you to come back and check it out. And that's probably my very favorite method is, is to just keep the herd going enough to the point where I can cut the distance, stay within that 100, 150 yards. And then I like that time frame of, like I said, maybe 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock in the morning when they're kind of looking to head into that bedding area. You know, the bull I killed this year, I, I never did call. You know, I, I glassed that bull up midday. He was bedded with six cows and that was purely spot and stock. And all I did was get the wind in my favor and go super slow, you know, two or three steps at a time. I used the top cam on my bow to essentially hold up and cover my face. And I would just keep an eye on those elk. And I went from about, you know, 350 yards to a hundred yards. It took me about three and a half hours. And that was just two steps at a time and just watching the herd. So that's, I mean, that's a, a lot like stalking deer, right? Whether it's a whitetail or a mule deer or anything, you know, you're just keeping your head on a swivel. You're watching the behavior of those animals and you're just taking it super slow. And so you just held your, your bow sideways and used the cam to cover your face. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I shoot a, a back bar on my bow. So I've got the front stabilizer and the back bar and I right. just use that. I just use that back bar like a handle. I'll grab the back of it and hold the riser in my left hand and mm -hmm. I'll just put that cam right in front of my face. And it just kind of helps break up my face. Gotcha. And I'm just taking two or three steps at a time and I'm just watching the behavior of those animals. And, you know, if there's a cow that looks like she's got me pegged, I'm just going to wait her out. Just um, basically stand still. Yep. Just stand still. And, you know, there, I think camel can help you, especially if you get in close, it might give you an, another two or three seconds if an animal does spot you, but really it's just movement. So, you know, if an animal, the same with whitetail, right? If you hold still, they're probably going to yeah. give you a break. You might have to wait them out for four or five minutes, but you know, it's really that movement that gets you in trouble. 
that I didn't even have that question on my list, but I do hear people talk about that a lot. Like, do you need camo? Solids are fine. Like, do you, you, you I think you wear a lot of solids, right? So you, it's not like that huge of a deal. It's like you said, it might buy you a second or two, but what are your thoughts around that? It's a matter uh, of the other. I think it's sometimes I'll wear a camo top. I, I, I don't know, like during the rut, like if a, if a bull elk is like really tuned up, I mean, I've, I've been with guys that have shot elk in, you know, full solids, no big yeah. deal whatsoever. And, you know, he comes right at in cause he's looking for a cow or he's really paying attention to one of his own cows. I think there's times when maybe it might buy you a second when that elk actually sees you, maybe you've made a movement and he's looked at you. I think some camo might help break up your, your outline, but really I think it's mostly movement. Gotcha. The one thing we that I haven't asked you about yet is just some tips on glassing. You know, if mm-hmm. somebody, if that's not something that that somebody's done, can you give some basic tips on you know where you start there, how you break a piece apart, and just generally like okay, if you've really never done that before, you know these are the top two or three things that you should kind of keep in mind when you go out there and do it for the first time. Mm-hmm. So it depends on on the hunt and the species. So if you're hunting you know, mule deer, for example, antelope, I think one of the best things that you can have is a tripod. So having your binoculars mounted on a tripod, get comfortable, get set down, carry a glassing pad so that when you sit down, you're comfortable and you're you're insulated off the ground. And, you know, a tripod for me is really, it's, it's been probably the, one of the most game changing pieces of equipment that I've bought in the last 20 years. I mean, for Western hunting, it's really tough to beat a pair of good binoculars on a tripod. So before I even move past that, what, what would mm-hmm. you, what try, what tripod do you run in? And then can you talk a little bit about what, you know, what magnification, what binoculars you're carrying and are you carrying, are you also mm-hmm. carrying a scope? Yeah. So for a tripod, I'm using a Tricer. So they make, you know, lightweight backpack style tripods. They make a taller one, the AD, which is the one I've got. They also make a shorter one, which is even lighter. I like a tilt pan head, so it's going to give you both the vertical and the horizontal pan, and you can lock those out independently. Okay. And I like that because, you know, I'll lock out one of those and just use that to scan up and down on the landscape. It's It's got to be a fluid head. It's got to be super smooth. Is that something that, does that come with a tripod or do you have to buy the head separately? Typically, they're separate. Okay. And which head do you yeah. like? Oh uh, yeah, I use the same tricer. It's a tricer okay. tilt, pad, yeah, gotcha. tilt pad head. Um, right. You know, if you you go to the Go Hunt Gear Shop, we've got Surrey makes a great tripod. Manfredo makes a nice tripod, but I, I typically err on the lighter version, so mm-hmm. I don't want to pack a bunch bunch of extra weight. So you know, I'm I'm looking for the lightest weight option that can still hold the optics that I have sturdy enough that I can glass through them. But magnification, I like a ten by forty two. That's what I wear in my binocular harness. I think it's probably the best all-around Western big game magnification. I have been using these little SIG. I've got a pair here. I don't know if you've seen these, but it's a SIG image stabilization bino. I've seen them, but I haven't seen like run them or anything. Yeah, are they those amazing? Are, they're pretty incredible. They're they're it's like a magic trick. <laughs> so how <laughs> does that how does that thing work? So you you just look through them. It's just like a typical pair of binoculars. This is a pair of 16s, but it's got a little mag, a little electro stabilization. So you just flip that lever on, and when you do that, it's going to electronically stabilize the image that you're seeing. So it's like looking oh, wow. off off of a tripod. It basically just 
flattens any movement out of your your field of view. So did you, so those do are, you eliminate those are the tripod when you use that, or do you find like the tripod still makes it more comfortable to to glass mm-hmm. for long periods of time? So it depends on the species. So for elk, I would have you know no issue whatsoever with taking these into the mm-hmm. field, and I feel like I would see most of the elk on the landscape. If I'm hunting like early season, you know, mule deer, or if I'm hunting antelope or, you know, like coos deer in the desert, Arizona, I do like a tripod and I like to sit down and get comfortable and really pick apart the landscape because those animals can, you know, hide. And it's just like a little bit of movement might give one of them away, whereas I might miss it with these. I do carry, I would say if if I'm hunting elk, like archery elk, it depends on the area. So if it's like an over-the-counter unit and I'm not real hung up on trying to maximize the trophy potential for that permit, I, I may not carry a tripod and a spotting scope. If I've drawn a really good tag like I did, you know, last year, I guess it was two years ago in Utah, I am carrying a spotting scope and a tripod because I want to look at those bulls and kind of size them up. Yeah. Figure out which one you want to go after. Yep. That makes sense. So from a technique standpoint, I know that's different if you're talking mule deer versus elk, but can you just give a couple technique suggestions in terms of, you know, breaking a, a piece apart and, you know, are you working it vertically and then horizontally or horizontally and vertically? What, what do you think is the, the easiest way to do that or a good way to start at least for somebody? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I pop up on a glassing point, the first thing I'm probably going to do before I even get set down is I'm going to pull out my binoculars and I'm going to look at, the areas that are most likely to have animals that are close to me. So I'm looking in that, like maybe, you know, hundred to 500 yard range, any areas that are adjacent to me that an animal might be close to me. And I'm just scanning those first and foremost with my binos offhand. Okay. If I haven't seen anything, you know, I might sit down, get my tripod set up, get my binos out. And at that point, I'm looking at the most likely areas that I might see animals. And typically that's those edges. So it's those edge habitats that are adjacent from like an open, big open feeding area to like a bedding area. So I'm cruising those areas first, you know, escape route, same thing. I might be looking at saddles. If it's early light in the morning, I'm probably cruising the ridge lines and I'm looking for silhouette animals. And I'm really cruising that first maybe half hour the areas that i think are the most likely and like i said that's edges horizons escape routes okay and then as i'm getting you know later in the morning that's when i'm really going to start to pick apart the landscape and i'm starting to really look in every little nook and cranny every shadow every little you know drainage that might have a buck or a bull that's kind of tucked away in the shade and I I don't really, I couldn't say like I'm always horizontal or I'm always vertical in my method. I kind of let the topography dictate where I'm going to glass and how I'm going to glass. That makes sense. Okay. So I know you're an elk guy, right? Mm -hmm. You guys have this conversation all the time. Elk versus (laughs) if it, like you said, it seems like elk is the one that kind of pulls a lot of people out there to begin with. And then they get out there. And once they've done that, they kind of, recognize there's other things to hunt other than elk what's your next favorite animal to hunt out there yeah i'd say mule deer yeah yeah i i like hunting elk more only because i think i like the vocalization i like that interaction and i think elk are you know they're built for bow hunting there's a lot there's a lot of them they're noisy you can make some mistakes and you can basically run and gun all day and and hunt elk 
I like hunting mule deer, big mule deer, because they're, you know, so secluded and secretive and they're really tough to hunt. They're just, they're a lot harder to hunt. So in that regard, I would say they're probably my, my second favorite. And do you, do you, when you hunt mule deer, do you only archery hunt them or do you also rifle hunt? I have mostly archery hunted. I've muzzleloader hunted. I've had one rifle deer tag in maybe the last 10 years, I guess. Gotcha. So you're an art, you're an, an archery guy. Most, yeah. Mostly archery and muzzleloader. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of my thing too. I, I really don't rifle hunt hardly mm-hmm. ever, but I, I just wondered, like I, I've, I got a buddy of mine who went out and did a mule deer hunt. I think this was his fourth one and mm-hmm. he, he killed one and it killed a big one, but he said it was the hardest thing he's ever hunted because he archery hunted it. And I think that stock was about a 250 yard stock and it took like five mm-hmm. hours. He said, yep. he said it was just ridiculous. Like the focus and the lack of movement and all the stuff that you had to put into it just to get a shot on this thing. Yeah. They're really hard to hunt with a bow. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, I mean, insane. yeah, they're, they're really switched on. I mean, they hear everything. They have a great sense of eyesight. They pick up movement extremely well you know, they often timber up in bed. They're hard to pinpoint. They're just, they're really tough to hunt yeah. with a bow. Well, I know that's a, almost a separate conversation, but so the last thing I would ask you, and I know that you don't have to go into everything, but just if you, if you had to pick three to four pieces of essential gear, what mm-hmm. would it be? Yeah. So your, your weapon, obviously, you know, get, get a good weapon, get something that you're super confident with. And it doesn't have to be the, you know, the top model on the market, but you need to put the time and effort into it so that you're proficient with it. And I would say most, most people, you know, that miss opportunities on animals, it's probably because they probably haven't put enough time and effort behind the weapon or the range. So that, that would be a second. That second was going to be my next question. Was yeah. that, if you're coming out in your archery elk hunting, where do you, how far out do you need to be proficient? with your bow? I would say be as proficient as you can to, I mean, as far as you possibly can. I'm not, I'm not taking hundred yard shots. I've never killed an animal over, you know, maybe 68, I think is probably the furthest I've ever killed an animal, but most of your shots are going to be, you know, 20 to, I would say 50 yards for, for elk 20, Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe 60, you know, the further that you can be proficient, you know, the better, but really, I think shooting at distance, you know, I, I shoot at 100, 120 yards a lot at my local range. It's not that I'm, you know, going to take a 120-yard shot on an animal. It just makes those 40-yard shots so much more comfortable. Right, yeah. If you can be proficient at 100, 120, then you feel a lot mm-hmm. more comfortable taking that 60 or 70-yard shot. For for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so a rangefinder, like I said, that would be my second piece. Third, I would say a good pair of boots. It's, you know, rough topography. You're going to have to keep your, your feet in good shape and you're going to want to break those in well in advance. Yeah. That was, I was actually going to ask you that because I just got a pair of crispy Berkstall mountains mm-hmm. and, you know, out, out here, it's like, I'm either in, you know, Solomon four D's when I'm out just kind of schlepping around the woods or lots of times we're in, you know, like lacrosse burly pros because it's mucky and whatever so mm-hmm. it's a completely different feeling kind of boot what's your recommendation for breaking those in it's hard to be just wear you know wear them yeah wearing them day in and day out they're so much stiffer it just it's really mm-hmm. they feel so much different 
Yeah. And it, and if you can, I mean, I know it's not always feasible for folks to get some elevation gain up and down, but if you can, even if it's on a treadmill, get that thing at incline just to let your, you know, your feet kind of get used to what that's like and, and be aware if there's any hill slip, if you're going to develop any blisters on your heels, I would say it's probably the most common spot that people are going to get blisters. So, you know, if you can put some elevation to those boots, you're going to want to wear them a little bit when they're wet because, you know, wet feet and hiking in a boot can give you some major issues. So I used to take my boots and wet them completely out and I'd throw them on my foot and I would go out and wear them and go for a long hike and try to wear them till they're dry. Mm-hmm. That'll kind of give you an idea on, you know, how those are going to perform if your feet get wet. But yeah, I just, it's hard to beat just wear them, just okay. wearing them day in, day out. And then, you know, put some elevation on them if you can. And do you think do you always have a backup bow? Is that like an essential thing that you need a second bow if you're coming out there? Uh, if you've got one, it's a great idea just to keep it in the truck. I would say I very rarely ever carry a backup bow, but I do know how to work on my bow. So, mm-hmm. you so know, yeah, if a D loop, yeah. Yeah. If a D loop breaks, I know how to fix a D loop. You know, I always carry backup Allen wrench sets, backup rest, backup release. Sometimes I'll carry a backup sight. I just carry, you know, bits and pieces and I, I understand how to work on my bow just in case I have to. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, lots of good information. You know, this was the reason I do this is because I get to talk to people that mm-hmm. I, I would not normally get to have conversations with. And these are the kind of conversations that I love having is like learning about something I don't know anything about. So Super appreciative of you jumping on today. And for somebody who's just getting ready to go out, I think it's a really good base for at least some places to start. And, you know, here's a ton of stuff you need to be thinking about going ahead of time. So I appreciate your time Mm -hmm. trail. Thank you very much, man. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. In 2024, Do Not Go Quietly is partnering with Osseo Gear. Osseo is backed by over 30 years of bow hunting experience, and it shows. From the one-of-a-kind patented Osseo Raptor camo pattern that blends seamlessly into the whitetail woods, to the features and technology that set Osseo gear apart, Osseo is designed to meet the unique needs of bow hunters. I ran Osseo the entire season this past year, and from the 100-degree temperatures of the South Carolina swamps, which are brutal, to the teens of the Southern Illinois rut, Osseo had me covered. They have a layering system that covers you from every season to every temperature to every weather pattern. Osseo gear is backed by a lifetime guarantee. And if you use the code do not go 20, you can take 20% off the entire Osseo gear catalog. Elevate your game with Osseo.